I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast, a new theme month this month. War. War is an intense armed conflict between states, government societies, or paramilitary groups such as mercenaries, insurgents, and militias. It is generally characterized by extreme violence, aggression, destruction, and mortality using regular or irregular military forces. Hmm. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Absolutely. (laughs) I was leading you a horse to water. Yeah. It's War Movies Month. We did, I think this was pre-podcast when we did World War II Movie Month. Did we do a whole month on it? We did a whole month and then it spilled into longer when we did... Band of Brothers? Band of Brothers, yeah. What else did we do besides Patton and Band of Brothers? I, I can't immediately remember, but it was all World War Two. Yeah. And this month we are doing war in a more general sense. The plan is that each of the movies we select will be from a different war, moving forward chronologically. And so we are starting with the First World War and a 1957 film by the name of Paths of Glory. This is one where you didn't know what we were going to be watching until mere moments uh, before we started watching it. What, if anything, did you know about it and some first impressions? Before we go there, I think one thing I would like to do this month is -hmm. the person who selected the movie, I would like that person to start off with why they selected that movie. Why did I select this movie? Okay. So I selected this movie because, one, it's a good movie. Two, it's a movie that I have shown to many people. It's one of the most frequent movies I've shown, and I've shown it to a lot of people, one, because it's good, and two, because it's short. It's 88 minutes long. It is a it's considered one of the great anti-war war movies. It is based on a 1935 novel, also called Paths of Glory, by a man named Humphrey Cobb. And it is an early film for the director Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick came from a photography background, and in the early 50s he started to make short films, and then he made a film called Fear and Desire, which is also a kind of a war metaphor film set in an unspecified war. And that film, which Kubrick later said he hated and wished he could destroy every copy of it, it's actually not bad. I can, it's kind of arty, and and, uh, I can see why he might not like it, but actually it's, it's pretty good. But it attracted the attention of a man named James B. Harris, who is a film producer, Born in 1928, he is still with us at 94 wow. years of age. Uh, Harris liked what he saw in Kubrick, and he launched Kubrick's career. They made a film in 1956 called The Killing, which is a heist film that got good critical notices but did not do very good box office. This was their follow-up in 1957, which got both good uh, critical notices, and I, I wasn't able to find exact figures, but apparently did well enough at the box office. It's also the beginning of Kubrick's relationship with the actor Kirk Douglas, who got along with him swimmingly enough that he took him along with him to make a little movie called Spartacus, and the rest is history. I just, I, I think it's, I mean, for, for minutes, for 88 minutes, it packs a lot in. Like, it, like for, for quality per minute of film, you can't go wrong with Paths of Glory. Yeah, it's, it's an uh, impressive film. Which you'd heard the title. You said, you, I know the title, but that's I knew the title, and I had, in hindsight, I've seen a few scenes from this movie. Mm-hmm. 
but I have not seen probably any more than a maximum of five minutes of this film at any given time previously. And the images of Kirk Douglas in that uniform uh, I've seen in other things. Yeah. I think actually recently I was at my grandmother's house and she was watching this. Okay. But she turned it off, you know, shortly. Usually she turns off the TV shortly after I get there so we can visit. And yeah, but she was actually at the beginning of it when I was over there. So that conversation with the general at the beginning. Okay. I've seen that scene before. Okay. So... Yeah, it's really an impressive film. Before I go too much further into it, I kind of need to do a little bit of a plot synopsis. This is a World War One trench film from the French, you know, the soldiers are supposed to be French soldiers. It's in 1916. Yeah, and Kirk Douglas is Colonel Dax, who's the leader of the 701st. Mm-hmm. And there is... Uh, and he was a lawyer, a criminal lawyer in civilian life. Yeah. There is a General Paul Moreau, uh, who orders him to conduct a mission which will is anticipated to kill more than 60% of his company, but he's told to do it anyway. The attack fails for a myriad of reasons, and Moreau wants the men punished, and so he orders a general court-martial, and General Brolard has to con- convince General Moreau to tamper his expectations of what he wants out of the general court-martial. Like, Moreau initially wants 100 men killed for cowardice, and at one point it's talked down to a dozen, and then ultimately talked down to three. So they hold the court-martial, try the men, and they're executed, and then the actual actions of General Moreau are brought to light. The the things that he did that were terrible. And General Brillard, played by Adolphe Menjou, does ultimately put the accusations to General Moreau, played by George McCready, but he's going to be able to answer the charges against him. So it's kind of an unsatisfying way to handle that, especially for Colonel Dax, played by Kirk Douglas. And the film ends on Colonel Dax's company or battalion, I guess, being sent back to the front. Yeah. Because he, you know, combination of reasons, he also refused the advancement and so now they want to put him back on the front where there's a chance he might die and they can't continue to bring shame to him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I keep going back to how relatively short this, this film is. And in a way, there's not a lot that happens to it, but it, it in it. But, you know, it deals with pretty weighty subject well, matter. And there's a lot of unsatisfying things to it also, like the Lieutenant Roger not ever having any justice brought to him. Lieutenant Roger is the man who basically is the coward like there's a night patrol that's sent out and he's the one who throws a grenade killing one of his own men and runs back to the to the lines and has written up a report where they're both dead when the other private returns and then he assigns that private to be one of the men to be court-martialed and, and killed and those two had had a history together they'd known each other in civilian life the private did not respect him the lieutenant and he does get a bit of a comeuppance in that when Colonel Dax has to assign someone to oversee the execution to offer the people the blindfolds, he makes this guy do it because he can't do much of anything to him. But one thing he can do is he can force him to be there up front, close and personal. And, you know, when he's putting the, the blindfolds on him and he comes up to that guy who, you know, is there because of him. I, you know, if it was me, I would say, think of this every day until you die. Yeah. 
and you kind of hope he does. Well, it's kind of like Colonel Dax tells the court. He says, if you convict and execute these men, you're going to regret it every day of your life until the day you die. And that's kind of this desperate, because it appears that when he gets that information about General Moreau ordering the uh, firing on his own men... The artillery to, the artillery to firing, shell his own lines. ...that he thinks that he's got an out. It's like this is the, the miracle play at the end. And it it plays the movie plays it ambiguously so that you think that maybe this will come off. And then ultimately it doesn't. Until afterwards, and then there's that conversation between him, between Adolf Manjo, Kirk Douglas, and George McGrady, where Adolf Manjo says this information come to life about what you, George uh, McGrady, did. So there's going to have to be an inquiry, but you know, you just told me that it's nonsense, so you should be perfectly fine. Yeah, but and you'll have the opportunity to defend yourself. The implication is this guy's career is over. Yeah. Because they've got the sworn statements for the people who refuse to carry out the bombing of their own position. The context of all this is the Ant Hill, which is the name of this fortified hill, German position, and Adolf Monger shows up in that first scene and tells uh, George McCready, we need, we need you to take this, and his first re- reaction is like, that's freaking impossible. He's like, well, okay, well, if you don't want that, I'm sure we can reassign you, and blah, 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 and then kind of massages his ego, and then once he's in, George he's McCready all is in. all in. And he refuses to see what he could see so clearly moments before it became, I could get another star. And he knows this is just insanity. And they have conversations later on between Manju and, and Douglas where he talks about, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe this was a bad idea to be in with. Maybe the general staff made a mistake. But, you know, maybe your men made a mistake by not being more brave. Maybe they could have taken it. We'll, we'll never know. And it's important to keep in mind the amount of pressure on the general staff from the politicians and the newspaper. This is all about passing the buck. There's so much passing the buck. And such a materialistic way of seeing things, this this non-principled way of seeing things. Or cynical or... Well, at, at the end, when Adolf Manju is like, you really didn't want to save those men's life. You weren't just angling for promotion. And like that's the way he was seeing it, that everything was coded about status. Whereas... Kirk Douglas' character is a man of principle, and that makes him kind of the odd man out in this film. There's a lot of decent people the lower down the ranks. The more yeah. decent the human beings seem to be in this. Yeah, it's like you said, it's a tight film. It accomplishes a lot. I was impressed by how much meaning is conveyed. Essentially, the only female character in the entire film is Christine... Christiane Kubrick. She's billed differently in the film, but this as is... As Susan Christian, who is the German singer in yeah. the in the cafe. This is Stanley Kubrick's wife at the time. Uh, she is also still with us. She's 89 years old. Yeah. And there's that scene at the end where all those uh, soldiers are in a cafe, and they bring this captured German woman out to sing. And at first, everybody's rowdy, and there's this... this uh, she's terrified. And then the longer she sings, the quieter it becomes, and it turns out to be a song that is known on both sides of the trenches. And the soldiers start to uh, kind of hum along, and it's this moment of connection and empathy. After a, a, a connection and empathy succeeding, after a film that was about the failure of connection and empathy. So it does leave on a hopeful note. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the scene in the court-martial. Just the the Kafka-esque 
insanity of it and how they're going through the motions but they're not but like it's already set in stone that actually okay let me pull up one other thing what i wanted to look at here is the imdb or the amazon prime description of this movie it says this powerful fact-based absurdity of war film stars kirk douglas as a commanding officer who defends three scapegoats on trial for a failed offensive that and then it doesn't actually let me see the rest but the difference in description from like what's here on Amazon Prime versus what's on IMDb, I found that to be interesting. What was what did IMDb call it? The description on IMDb is after refusing to attack an enemy position, a general accuses the soldiers of cowardice, and their commanding officer must defend them. Indeed. I mean, all of these are accurate, but that description on Amazon Prime is also quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, give me one second. I'm going to look and see if I can find the full description somewhere that was on Prime. The closest I can see is, the futility and irony of the war in the trenches in World War I is shown as a unit commander in the French army must deal with the mutiny of his men and glory-seeking general, and a glory-seeking general after part of his force falls back under fire in an impossible attack. Yeah, and that was an impossible attack. They were just, uh, they, they even, they go out of their way to talk about how impossible it is because not only are there these distances and, and the fact that they have the high ground on the other side, but they're like, well, what's the weather supposed to be like tomorrow, Colonel? It's like, it's clear and sunny all day. And not only would they have to take it, they'd have to hold it until the evening, which is the soonest they can expect reinforcements. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it was ridiculous. But that, that section with, with the trial where he, Douglas can't make a defense because he keeps getting struck down and he gives his closing statements and he talks about all of his objections to the irregularity of this and the arbitrariness of this and the fact that they're not keeping any transcript of it, that there's all these irregularities associated with it because they are just trying, you know, to, to deal with an embarrassing situation and and scapegoat people well, and move on. There's also this weird dynamic of they say, well, sometimes an execution is good for the morale of the soldiers. How is that good for the morale of the soldiers? Like... They, well, they're this, very invested in believing it is because the again, alternative is bad press for them. Well, and it's the absurd. It's highlighting the absurdities of aspects of war. So, the cast is good. Uh, I wanted to mention Wayne Morris as Lieutenant uh, Roger, uh, Richard Anderson, who is best known as the boss on the Bionic Man, the Bionic Woman in the seventies, who's recently passed away. Joe Tukel is one of the soldiers on trial. He is also still with us at the age of 94, one of just a handful of living cast members for this 1957 film. And Timothy Carey is very uh, memorable as uh, Private uh, Pharrell. It's a very tall man. He looks kind of like Tom Green. Yeah. And, you know, he's just, he's he's sad. He's kind of, you feel, it's kind of a sad character. Everybody's kind of in a sad position, at least if they're far enough down the the totem pole here. But yeah, I just think it's a very compact and effective film. Wonderful, crisp black and white photography. There's very little music in the thing, and it it doesn't need it. No. Solid performances uh, all around. Yeah. I'm not seeing accurate box office figures, but I'm seeing an estimated budget of 935000 which was, again, keep in mind this was a 1957 film. It was, again, very well uh, received. It was on a number of uh, top ten lists. 
has a Rotten Tomatoes a reading of nine a rating of ninety six percent and an IMDb rating of eight point four stars. Wow, that's one of the highest. That yeah, I we've. Uh, I I saw a Metacritic score of ninety as well. Oh, okay. You ready for some IMDb trivia? Sure. This movie was banned in Spain under General Francisco Franco's dictatorship for an anti-military message. It was not released in Spain t- until 1986, 11 years after Franco's death. Yeah, and it's important to note that General Franco is still dead. <laughs> okay. He did, it was a recurring joke on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update in its first season. He mm-hmm. just died, and so Chevy Chase would yeah. just for random filler on General Franco was still dead. Winston Churchill said that the film was a highly accurate depiction of trench warfare and the sometimes misguided workings of the military mind. Oh, Churchill endorsement. For box office reasons, Stanley Kubrick intended to impose a happier ending. After several draft scripts, he changed his mind and restored the novel's original ending. Producer James B. Harris then had to inform studio executive Maxie Youngstein and risk rejection of the change. Harris managed by simply having the entire final script delivered without a memo of the changes, on the assumption that nobody in the studio would actually read it. And apparently he was right. (laughs) The film was also banned in France for negative portrayal of the French army. Switzerland also banned the film until 1978, accusing it of being subversive propaganda directed at France. Belgium required that a foreword be added, stating that the story represented an isolated case that did not reflect upon the gallantry of the French French soldiers. Both Stanley Kubrick and Kirk Douglas knew that the film was bound to be a hard sell to audiences, and despite the the minor box office take, Douglas still pocketed a salary that was roughly equal to one-third of the film's budget, which came out to about $1 million, $9 million in 2019 dollars. Kubrick, meanwhile, worked for a percentage of the profits but received no salary. Hmm. Stanley Kubrick, widely known as a perfectionist, shot 68 takes of the doomed men's last meal scene. Wow. Because the details of the scene required that the actors appear to be engaged in the act of eating. A new roast duck had to be prepared for almost every take. That's A lot of ducks died so this film could be made. There you go. Kirk Douglas in 1969 said of the film, There's a picture that will always be good years from now. I don't have to wait 50 years to know that. I know it now. Note, as of September 2020, it's still in IMDb's top 100 rated movies. Oh. I think that's all that uh, is probably worth including there. So, How many times would you say you've seen this film? Oh, I've seen this film better part of 10 times, probably. Yeah. Again, because it's short. Well, and how many people? I was going to ask, my next question was going to be, how many people have you shown this to? Oh, four, five, six, something like that. Yeah. I think it serves as a good introduction to Stanley Kubrick. I mm-hmm. think it's an interesting depiction of aspects of World War One. Yeah. It's, it's hard film. to really think of a film really like it. Yeah. At least not off the top of my head. Yeah. How would you rate this film? <clears throat> I have a feeling I know exactly where you're going on this. I would rate this film... I would probably give it... I would give it four stars, and I would give it nine out of ten. Actually, I'm a little surprised. I thought you were going to go four and ten. Mm-hmm. But I'm also four and nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a solid film. There, on the four star scale, there's really nothing you can take away from this film. So it's a four star film. There's a couple scenes in the middle for me that were just slightly over the top. In particular, the around the time of the last meal scene, it was just a slightly over the top. But it's hard to critique that, you know, and make that that criticism today versus when it was filmed in 1957. 
so which is why I give it nine out of ten on the ten star scale. Mm-hmm. What other thoughts do you have on this film, Nate? Do not be afraid to ask for credit, for our way of refusing is very polite. That's the sign that he says was in the restaurant. Mm. Yeah, which character made that line? Oh, uh, I forget. That reminds me of the quote from General Moreau. If those little sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones. General Moreau is not a great character in this. General Moreau is a great character, but well, a horrible right. person. Yes. Like, like you really hate him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is, this is a very intriguing film, and it's one that... It's a hearty recommendation. It will stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. It is... It predates the MPAA rating system, mm-hmm. so it only carries a rating of approved. Approved. Any other thoughts? I think I think we've uh, said what we have to say. I'm Rob. And I am Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. Which I now wish I'd been recording for that conversation. Mm-hmm. This is going to take just a second, so bear with me. This will get edited out of the recording, but Nate's the only one who has to bear with me. Ah. There is a bear with you. You gotta get that bear. So I've been thinking about our dual rating systems. This is one of the uh, ongoing conceits conceits of the show that's derived basically from the fact that we could not agree on a rating system. Mm -hmm. I tend to think of things in that force style, more critically oriented scale, where you prefer the populist uh, 10 scale uh, from IMDb. I would have been perfectly happy with a 5 star scale. But the four-star scale doesn't allow enough flexibility. Well, I was thinking about this the other day, and, and we haven't ever formalized like criteria on either of these scales, but I'm thinking that I might lean towards dividing them that way. It's like the, like the critical to quality is the four-star scale, and the enjoyability is the ten-star scale. And this idea came to me because I saw the perfect movie to talk about uh, a difference between scales, and I have mentioned this to you briefly, it is Aline, a French-Canadian unauthorized biopic of Celine Dion, starring the co-writer, director, actress playing Celine, here named Aline for copyright liability reasons, playing this character from the age of 6 to the age of 48, and she's like 54, and they do it with like a surreal digital effect that it just looks wrong. And it is just full of cliches, though at the same time, Celine Dion's life is so kind of inherently campy that it's like appropriate that her her biopic be done in such a kind of over the top way. And it's just it's full of all the cliches of the the musical biopic. It feels in 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 a way like a TV movie because there's very little conflict in it. Like the biggest conflict is the twenty something age. Your difference between her and her hu- who, the man who became her husband, who was her agent from when she was twelve. No, twelve. They got married when she was like twenty, and he was like fifty. But it's just ridiculous. But it's super enjoyable. So I would have given that film like a two on the four star scale, but like a nine on the ten star scale. If we're just talking wow. about enjoyability of of watching it. Sometimes I, more recently in particular. I have a little bit of skepticism on your how you rate good bad films. Okay. Solely because of the discrepancy in how you rate Velocipatterster and Lamageddon. Mm-hmm. The things that you describe as to why you like Velocipatterster are precisely why I like Lamageddon. 
but you don't see them in Lamageddon. I know. Yeah. So, while I don't necessarily disagree, I think you're probably right. I'm curious. Like, part of me now wants to watch this movie just so I can give an, you know figure out what my opposing rating would be mm-hmm. and see whether we agree on it. Because it's it's kind of intriguing when we agree and when we don't mm-hmm. agree. So yeah. My other thought on tonight. Okay. I'm now concerned that the rest of my picks for the month are going to pale in comparison. Oh, okay. So we'll see. I'm curious because one of my picks I've never previously seen. As is my next pick. So, and I don't actually know for sure how it's going to hold up. So, mm. I'm a, I'm I'm almost a little bit afraid we started with our top movie. Oh, could have. Yeah. Which sometimes makes the rest of the month kind of, yeah. Mm. But time will tell, I suppose. I think war movies was your suggestion, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I want. I, I like the idea of doing a genre, yeah, theme month uh, each year. Yeah. Well, we're gonna do at least two, right? Oh, well, yeah. But the, the next ones are gonna be a little more. Oh no! Defined. Disaster movies is for like it's gonna be like for next, next year. year. Yeah, it's yeah. on the list for next year. Yeah. I mean, we have tended to focus a little heavily on director or or actor. Yeah, yeah. for a little while now. So advertisements. No. Come on, man. You've got all sorts the, I of, did of the research war time. thing. All right, that's not an advertisement. War? Well, I was you, doing. You quoted I was, a song. I was doing a, a little extra something. <laughs> yeah, but that's in the main recording, not in the outtakes. Uh, or perhaps it was an advertisement for Colonel Dax's law office. <laughs> the best criminal defense attorney in all of France. Yeah, those three guys died, but that wasn't his fault. <laughs> that was actually pretty reasonable. 